Well, here is the latest vase that I've created. It's fresh from the kiln. It looks nice, but what's this fuzzy stuff that's stuck to it? Well, I, I guess a few of my follicles might have fallen onto the vase when I was making it. No offense, but these strands are gross. What do you mean? You're a wonderful artist in ceramics. Mm -hmm. Your glazing is excellent. Thanks. Your shedding, though, is ruining the crockery. It is. Look, I don't think... Your it... terracotta is more like haricotta. Now, that's just... And a... they're so curly, too. I can't help it if they fall How out. How about wearing a long sleeve shirt next time, huh? But I like working shirtless. Look, you can't work shirtless. And I don't make see the problem. Thing. You just can't. Harry Potter will not be presented at this time. It'd be different if you were making sweaters. In order to bring you the following special podcast, it's almost live. Still alive. It's alive. A limited podcast series about Northwest Television's legendary TV sketch comedy show. An amazing phenomenon. Featuring intimate conversations with the writers, performers, creators. Rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, bushwhackers, hornswagglers, horse thieves, bulldogs, train robbers, bank robbers, ass kickers, shit kickers, and murderers. Your host was one of them. I think I would remember a thing like that. Pat Cashman. What's the matter with you? Almost live. It's <laughs> just a real nice surprise. Still alive. Just a real nice surprise. One of the reasons I decided on the podcast name, Almost Live, Still Alive, is because happily everybody from that show is still with us. Not necessarily still with it, me most notably, but everyone otherwise is still breathing and reasonably coherent. But there's one person who narrowly escaped being the exception. Because not only did we nearly lose Tracy Conway some years ago when her heart suddenly decided to stop ticking, it happened in front of a live audience, still revved up from watching a show taping just moments earlier. I'll just bet that story is going to come up in the minutes ahead. From the very beginning in 1984, Almost Live was never a television show with money to burn. Its budget required the hiring of writers and pretty much only writers. It never had the luxury of hiring both writers and then also actors. Now you take me for example. When I graduated from high school, I thought about studying acting, but I had a decision to make. Should I move to New York City and attend the Juilliard School with an emphasis on drama, music, and dance? Or instead, stay in my hometown and go to community college with an emphasis on puppetry, cartooning, and pottery? I decided to skip Juilliard. But on one occasion, Almost Live hired a person who was both a trained actor and perhaps a writer. She's got herself one of them masters of fine arts from USC. She was and is the whole package, Tracy Conway. Tracy, when I'm with you, something you do bounces me off the ceiling. Now, to prepare for this podcast episode, I googled Tracy's name for more information. On her Wikipedia page, and I'm not making this up, I read that she is married to cast member Bob Nelson, and that they have three kids, Alexander, Miriam, and Maya. This was news to me, and to Tracy. In fact, the woman famous for being the worst girlfriend in the world has never been married, never had kids. Her fictional husband, Bob Nelson, refuses to pay child support, and that figures. Meanwhile, if anyone ever decides to fix that erroneous Tracy Conway Wikipedia page, they should also add this. She is the warmest, most genuine person you'll ever meet. 
eternally upbeat, sunny, ready to laugh. And she's also one of the finest performers this side of Juilliard. I found her, thanks to Zoom, at her Seattle home, where she lives with Ella, her beloved Siberian Husky, a wonderful dog to whom the deadbeat, Bob Nelson, also pays no monthly support. Now let me give you who are listening a little background uh, on how we do this. When I began an interview with somebody, I asked them to join me in a numerical countdown, sort of like, uh, you know, NASA does, five, four, three, two, one. And then if we say it together, then I know I've got audio sync, if that makes any sense, so that our dialogue will match up. So this is the way it began with Tracy. We've been rolling for a bit, and here we go, and I'll start with five, and then join me at three. Five, four, three, two. two, two oh, you wait. Okay, four. you've been slowing down. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, my apologies. I think I screwed you up. Uh, sorry, sorry. I'm so bad at this. Five and four will give you the rhythm of it, I think. Five, four, three, two, one. one. Nope, I'm terrible at this path. No, you're ah! not. I think we're good anyway. Are you? Yeah, I oh. think so. Yeah, we'll be good. No, 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 no. It's me. It's all me. We'll act like it never happened and the listeners will never be the wiser. Screw this stupid countdown. Here we go. Conway, how are you? I'm 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 feeling uh like I'm not very good at the countdown. Well, people don't even know what that means. I know they won't. What, what, what are you working at Cape Canaveral now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I uh, I met El- Elon. What's his? How does he say his name? Elon Elon Musk, and I'm working. I'm working with them now. It does you are? No. What are you? What? No. I've always enjoyed his no. perfume. Yeah. <laughs> um, God, you're so you're so fast, so, Pat. I can't. So, keep up. Uh, so what do you? Um, what? Do, where do we find you today? Where are you at home? Like, I am at home. Okay. I am at home a lot these days. Yeah. Is your dog? Uh, is your dog there too? She is. She's just across the room in her favorite chair. That's that's uh, probably fifteen thousand of my nineteen thousand photos on my iPhone are my dog curled up in that chair. So yeah. As much as as much as anybody, <laughs> you, are, you are the person that uh, influenced me and my wife to get a dog. No, we, we didn't. We didn't have one for much of our kids growing up period of time we had some dogs but not successfully uh that's that's not a variety of stories here's one we had a dog named fred he once shot a man just for snoring got out of bed and shot him dead well his name was i didn't know what his name was so we just called him fred Years ago, I think we only had one child then, and Fred was uh, from the pound, and he was kind of a a weird-looking dog. He had a big pink face and a really big pink nose with huge nostrils, and he looked for for all the world like a pig. And and so we had Fred uh, made a little kennel for him outside. And we don't we we have our dogs inside now, so that was one mistake. Right, so Fred right. was out there and he was lonely, I think. Very, yeah. Didn't like didn't like it and 
And somehow he was able to escape from this kennel all the time. Mm-hmm. Whether he dug out from underneath it, he got over the top, he was always getting away. And we were always able to find him, or at least we'd go down to the pound and, and animal control and they, they would have him there. So one time we go uh, on a day's trip and we're out of town and ask the neighbor, check in on Fred every once in a while. Okay. So pretty soon we get a phone call. I'm afraid Fred got out again. So we go home and we can't find Fred. He's nowhere in the neighborhood. We don't know where he is. And then I get a call and he says, well, this is uh, Sergeant Jenkins down here at uh, Animal Control. Uh, we've, we've got your dog down here, Fred. Is that the name, Fred? Yes, Fred. Uh, Fred got hit by a car, mm-hmm. and uh, it looks like he got hit right in the face. And uh, so he's got one eyeball that is hanging out of its socket. Mm. And so, it, it, and so I went down there, and it was in the eyeball. This is grunt, kind of gross, but it was swinging around mm-hmm. like a like a punching bag mm-hmm. in a boxing gym. Mm-hmm. And so they said, "Do you wanna you wanna take him home like this, or do you want us to take the eye out?" And I said, "Hmm, let me think about that for about a megasecond. Yes, please, yes, take the eye out." So. They did. And so we, when we get Fred back, now he's got one eye shut and sort of stitched up, looking more like a pirate, a yep. pig pirate. Mm-hmm. I love you. And the legacy of Fred is that we decided that we just couldn't keep him. And I had a friend, you know, you always hear about when your parents said, oh, we took, uh, we took Fluffy out into the country. He's living on a farm now. Yeah. He's very happy. Old McDonald had a farm. E-I-E-I-O. It's always a lie, right. but in this case, it really was where we took Fred, and he really was loved by these folks out in the country. And if Fred could still be alive, but he'd probably be in his forties by now. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm very happy that Fred ended up where he ended up, and uh, wow! Oh my gosh! Yeah. He's a one-eyed dog. So, Tracy Conway, uh, I want to start. First of all, I would not only just introduce you as a a member of the cast, but as uh, the angel of the show. (laughs) And your spec, you are or the the specter, the ghost. You you are (laughs) one of those people that that is just as nice, if not nicer, in person than you are. in, in, in any part you could ever play on oh, a show. Oh, you're so sweet, honey. Thank you so much. And, well, that means more to me than you know. Thank you, dear. Well, it's true. I mean, so a lot of people, when you meet them in person, they let you down. Not you. Oh. I, I tell everybody that. Oh, thank you. You're, you're never, you were never seem jealous. You never seem competitive. Um, we had other women that would come on the show, and there's a close stereotype about, you know, women mm-hmm. being jealous of other women. Ne- none of that. You were always welcoming and kind to everybody. And uh, and still are. So that's just how who you are. But I want to start, if I can, you may about where you where you were born, where you grew up. Where did it all begin for Tracy Conway? Well, it began in a place that I have no memory of in Grand Island, Nebraska, 
which who would ever think that Nebraska could even have an island? But I was going to say, yeah. much less be grand. But yeah. much less be grand. <laughs> so my father was a career military officer in the army. And I'm sure my parents thought they were done having their family. But lo and behold, seven years behind my brother, I made an appearance. And yeah. um, so I was very much the spoiled baby of four siblings. And I have no memory of Nebraska because I think we moved away. My dad was um, reassigned to Fort Carson, Colorado. He was mm. the IG, which I believe means the inspector general. So you're a military brat. I well, I am, but I'm not. You know, I didn't have the military experience of being uprooted and moved all the time. That was my dad's last assignment. We oh. were there for six years. Um, you know, my my siblings had that experience to some degree, being moved around. Right. And they also had much more the experience of my father being a respected military officer. And my dad was nothing like. You know, when people think of, oh, you grew up a military brat, was, uh, brat, was your dad like a... Attention! At ease, Tracy! Yeah, yeah. so not none of that. that. None of that. He fought... Um, in, my mom and dad met in college in Colorado. You know, they were in a fraternity and a sorority and have an adorable, you know, romance and... Was he an ROTC guy? Is that how he got into the army? No, I don't think so. Mm -mm. I think that when World War II came along, um, he probably, I don't know that you can apply for officer training, but he qualified for that. So he met your mom first, yes. then he went into the military. Yes, yes. Okay, okay. And um, they, I have a fabulous, of course, picture of them. They got married and she wore one of those darling white suits or cream colored suits you know she didn't have the big foofy diana wedding dress and i don't even know that anybody other than maybe his mother and uh some some other witness was there at their wedding and fairly a quickly, church wedding you know it was it was a little church in san luis obispo because i think that's mm -hmm. where my father was stationed nearby there and my mother was living with my dad's mom you know, and then they got married and had a very brief honeymoon. And then I think my my dad probably was uh, sent off fairly quickly after that. But my eldest sister was um, born in 1942. And my second sister, who came two and a half, almost three years behind her, he never even had seen my sister Pam until after the war ended. Hmm. And, Where was he stationed? Do you know? Well, at that time, he became the the mucky muck um, in a Japanese community. They moved him and my mother and my two sisters into the governor's uh, home. And, oh, it's amazing. Uh, in fact, I was just reading to Keister the other day. We found a letter that my mom had written home to her family describing the trip over on, it was a big uh, ship. I don't, know, was a, I don't think it was a battleship, but it was a ship called Shanks. Have you ever heard of that? Her war complement of 309 crew members has been reduced to 264, with consequent reduction in living accommodations. Anyway, she described what it was like and how, how they were treated, and, and then going moving into this house where there were the Japanese paper walls, and she was always having to try and keep my sister Trudy from poking her fingers through the paper walls. And 
you know, just really an amazing uh, life for a couple of kids who grew up not at all moneyed. You know, my mom came from a yeah. farm family. She was one of 10 kids. And my, my dad, he had in a, been in a family that was reasonably well off, but they got their business burned out by the Klan because they were Catholic. So what is the Ku Klux Klan? Well, it's an American hate group, also known as the KKK, that generally promotes the supremacy of the Christian Caucasian ethnicity. Yeah, that happened to my grandfather, too. Yeah, I don't think it was that unusual. Yeah, and and that, was in, that was down in Band, Oregon here, of all places. Wow. But the Klan uh, yeah. had their way around here for a long time until people like my grandfather ran them out of here. Well, good for your grandfather. And you're Irish, right? Hey, that's A.M. Yes, that's what I thought. So, well, I'm a county Conway, too. Anyway, we're going on and on way too much about my, my no, family no, history. This is great. I never knew this stuff. What yeah. rank did your dad reach? He was lieutenant colonel when he retired. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, when cool. he was the I.G. So, yeah. so now he's out of the military. So he yeah, was out uh, of the military. I, I was kind of a sickly kid. I had a lot of allergies. And my early memories are that... I wanted to be a horse. That was my goal in life. I was going to grow up and be a horse. I wanted to be a manatee. So I. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I just thought it'd be fun to live in Florida. Oh, okay. I know. I was a dreamer. Well, that's obviously that came true. A lot of those big dreams, you know. And uh, so I was in and out of the, not staying overnight, but I was a sickly kid and I was like, I said spoiled because my siblings were all older enough that they couldn't beat me up. You know, I was just the, they had to babysit and I was kind of the doll. I had really long hair, waist length hair. And my sisters were always doing me these elaborate buns and ponytails and teased styles, you know, of the early sixties. Here I am all of six years old and I've got this giant bouffant. That's really great. Oh, I have great pictures. And then my parents decided when my father did uh, reach his 20-some years uh, that he had put into the military, they moved us to Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is where my mother's closest sister, closest in age, she and her family lived. And, you know, it it was moving to a place where there was family. And Yeah, but it probably was better for your allergies, too. Well, it was. I mean, I don't think that was the reason they chose it, but they knew it would be beneficial. So we went to beautiful Albuquerque, New Mexico, a very kind of, oh, not like Bend. Bend was probably a little smaller, but, you know, kind of a gawky, kind of a gawky, but uh, exotic place to grow up in terms of the desert and the mountains. I always wanted to go there. I, I. I, I, when I think about Albuquerque, I think of the TV show Breaking Bad. You, uh, you want to cook crystal meth? It wasn't like that. I mean, it, 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 it wasn't a crime-ridden place, and I, I'm assuming when you were a kid. Oh, uh, no. Unless no. you were the criminal. No, well, you know, uh, no, I was not. I was such a goody two-shoes. No, not at all. So how long did you live there? You went to grade school there? Oh, I lived there until I moved to California to go to graduate school. So I... Oh. Um, my parents, uh, my dad, actually, I think for a while, he, he looked into doing some management work because, of course, he'd been an IG. And, but unfortunately, I, I never really got to ask my dad, me as an adult, talk to my dad about 
some of his life choices because I was just too involved in me and my own life, my own young life. And he ended up, before he had gone into the military, he had worked as a retail person in JCPenney's in Colorado. And he went back and he worked again at JCPenney's um, as a retail. He was basically the head of men's suits. And he worked another 20 years after he retired from the military at JCPenney's in a very, you know, modest job. He was very good at it. My dad was always a wonderful dresser. And uh, we never owned a home. We rented our home. Uh, but I never really knew that we were very, you know, modestly incomed. I think my yeah. mom, she always took side jobs just so there'd be a little extra money for Christmas. And, and so I went to grade school and junior high and high school and college um, in Albuquerque. I went what college was that? University of New Mexico. I was there on an academic scholarship because I was a pretty good student. And were you? What, where were your strengths? What were you good at? Everything? Uh, pretty much everything except math. I was not good yeah. at math. but That's a recurring theme with these almost live folks. <laughs> don't know much about algebra. I don't know what a slide is for. But I do know one and one is two. And if this one Well, it's limited us in our in our uh, in our employment opportunities post almost live. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I guess <laughs> Nye is probably pretty solid. Yeah, he's math, yeah, but, he's pretty good. Yeah. No, I was really good uh, in science. I took advanced biology, and I, you know, I was good at the science fair, and I excelled in art and my literature classes. So I, I was pretty much not quite, but almost a straight A student. I was not that great in PE. I was good at what I was good at, but I wasn't good at uh, group sports. So, you know, and I had, I stopped PE as quickly as I could. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So you were, you wouldn't want to play basketball or football, but you were maybe were more into boxing and stuff like that, right? <laughs> I think more, more the balance beam than boxing. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, okay. Was, I was just, I was just guessing. Yeah. Uh, so, so when did you, this, when did it come along that you said, Gosh, you know what? I kind of like to. I kind of like acting, or I kind of like radio or TV. I mean, what, what? Can you remember any moment or that drew you to thinking? Because I'm assuming that's what you did at graduate school was was pursue acting. I did, yeah. Well, I knew I knew pretty early. Part of it was, I think, being a spoiled little girl. You know, the baby of the family. Uh, and everybody had their eyes on me. Actually, I won a talent contest when I was, I think, three. Really? Yeah. Um, what did you, well, what did you come do? Come on, what? Pat, it was at the, the army base. How hard is that going to be? The three-year-old the IG. <laughs> did you sing a song? Did you dance? I, what yeah. was it? I sang this. I have a pair of dancing shoes. They fit me to a T. And every time I put them on, they run away with me. Isn't that an award-winning song right there? That's first prize as far as I'm concerned. Uh, in junior high, when all my girlfriends 
stopped wanting to play make-believe because I always got to be the star and I got to direct the script essentially of all the things that we did playing Here Come the Brides and Batgirl and you know I they all got interested in makeup and boys and I wanted to keep on playing make-believe and I liked the costumes and I liked all of that and so I really did I think my mother nudged me toward getting involved in theater in high school because she had been involved in theater in high school and college. And it just was a good fit because I was not, I was never a cheerleader. I was a little too gawky. I mean, I was balanced. I don't mean, you know, that I was stumbling, but I wasn't a pretty girl. I was unusual and I was tall and so theater was a good match for me to, you know, everybody was always comparing me to Carol Burnett. And and that was fine. That'd be pretty flattering. I'd, I'd be okay with that if I, I was so compared. Well, I was. I was. And the, the advantage of being be the pretty a... girl. You know, when you're not the pretty girl, you want to be the pretty girl. And so that was always yeah. what I wanted to be, even though I, I always was getting cast in the comedies. And so, you know, like... Do you remember some of, the, that way. some of the high school plays you were in? Oh, yeah. I was in uh, an all-female version of 12 Angry Women. Oh wow! And what a I, great idea. Which I played the the whiner. I played the one that had the head cold, and it was just a big whiner. Yeah. And then I got to play. <laughs> Funny, this has never occurred to me until literally this second. I played the the dead woman who came back in Blythe Spirit, Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit. <laughs> you never thought of that before. No. <laughs> well. We're, we're going to get to why that is so ironic <laughs> as, as we talk about Well, this, and I was but... very comfortable in that role, so that's kind of funny. Elvira? Hello? You're dead. The one you were born to play. And then or... I, I played the, the equivalent to what led me to the worst girlfriend in the world. I played the sexy, stupid secretary in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Yeah, yeah. I love that play. I do, too. Uh, may I help you, honey? Did you wish to see someone, miss? Oh, how do you do? I'm supposed to see a Mr. Brad. I'm a secretary. Oh, I spotted that the minute she came in. Oh, Miss LaRue. Yes? Hi, Bert Brad. <clears throat> I'm Bert Brad personnel. <laughs> Sorry to have kept you waiting. Oh, not at all, sir. It is I who am late. That was a huge stride forward in my performing career and so those were the three big ones that I re- I mean I was in a couple of others but um yeah. so then you say you went to graduate school and that was in California where was that USC University of Southern California in Los Angeles yeah and I and actually I was I was accepted to the University of Washington I'd auditioned for a number of west coast schools after I did my four years and got my theater degree at UNM, but USC gave me the best scholarship. And so there was just no question that that's where I was going to go. You probably, your parents liked it better because you would be closer to home there too. You know, they might have, honestly, Pat, I don't know that, 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 you know, without getting into, you know, starting to play the violins, you know, and getting too purple here, but Literally, as I was leaving New Mexico, moving to California, uh, I just had turned 24 years old. And my mom had a recurrence that they did not know. Uh, She'd had breast cancer and they thought that they got it all, but they didn't. 
And just mm. as I was leaving to go to graduate school, she became very, very ill. And it was incredibly difficult. In fact, I don't remember a whole lot of my two years in my, my master's program because my mom died um, right around Christmas, right after I'd, I'd left in August. And I only got back to see her right before she died. And so they were so proud of me. I was the first one, not the first to graduate for college, but the first to go to, to graduate school. And they'd always been such adorable parents letting me pursue this ridiculous dream of wanting to be an actor. They just said, please learn to type, you know, <laughs> so that you have something to do before you're a famous star. Please, please learn to what? That just type. cut out a little bit. Type. Well, learn to type. <laughs> Use a typewriter so that I could be a secretary or whatever. And yeah. So, yeah, but I, you know, in at USC, graduate school is kind of a cop-out. You know, it can be a step up, but it, for me, it was more of a way to wade into a big city and see if anybody outside of Albuquerque thought I was a good actress. And they did at USC, but when I jumped into the giant ocean of actor talent in LA, I was drowning. I was just drowning. Hmm. Yeah. Did you what? What was your ambition? Did you want to be a theater actress? Did, yes. Yeah. Did you want to be on television? You want to do movies or all of it? Well, I I wanted to be a theater actress. I, you know, and honestly, I didn't even limit it. I I wanted to make a living doing what I. I liked to do and what I thought I was pretty good at. I, I wanted to be able, I didn't care about being famous ever, um, but I did want to be in that community and I wanted to be on stage. I, I wanted to be performing. And in LA, of course, you made money by either doing commercials or of course, if you mm -hmm. were really lucky, you'd get cast in in some kind of a TV or get a pilot, but I, I couldn't even get an agent. I mean, I, I had to pay to even be a member of a theater company. I had to pay dues and that's what paid the rental space for the theater company. And I did that for about four years and I did a play once in a while, but not a good play and nothing that ever got me anywhere. And I was really spiraling down. So, were, you, were you were you trying to maintain some kind of job during that time too? Well, I had to. I mean, I yeah. what'd you do? I was a production assistant, meaning I was a secretary for a tiny production company, and I worked for a while for a couple of guys that ran a PR agency. Again, I was the person answering the phones and doing, uh, you know, sometimes doing the the very basic questions getting information i mean i was in the business but i wasn't doing what i wanted to do and i wasn't on a set but i was yeah. you know i was making money and i had an apartment and for a while i shared an apartment with a fellow actor and you know what part I would, of town were you living in well well in college it was the best we had the best house ever because my boyfriend at that time was also in my uh master's program and he he just dreamed big he he would make things happen. He said, I, I want us to live on the beach. And it was like, are you nuts? But he, we said, let's just go drive around down there. So we lived, we found, we shared the bottom half of a house that was across the street from the really expensive houses on the beach in uh, right at the edge of Hermosa and Manhattan Beach. So oh I literally God. lived 
on the beach. You could open the front door and hear the waves crashing for the whole time I was in graduate school. And then for a while I lived in Echo Park and then I ended up moving into a really nice apartment that was right as you left the Hollywood Hills and were going into the valley. So I I was very well located to either go to the valley or go into Hollywood at that point. And that's where I lived most of my time. Before did you have a car or, or did you ride the bus? Oh, heavens no. <laughs> well, my first car died and I did have to ride the bus for a couple of weeks and that was insane. And my dad bought me another beater car because you cannot not have a car in LA. You just, yeah. Well, you yeah, they, they have, they have a terrible transit system to yeah. this day, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so you're, so you're doing that and you're, and, but you said in your own words that you were drowning there. Oh, I was. I mean, tell us about that. Well, it was hard to even get an audition. I mean, it was much more expensive to have headshots and, and, and get into a production where even an agent might come and see you and to actually do a show where you got paid was really hard because yeah. there were so many people who were already established on TV, but weren't very trained. They weren't very good. So their agents were always getting them into theater productions and that bumped the, the people who were trained actors out of the way. You know, I, Pat, I just was not, at that time, this was the very early 80s to the mid 80s, and I was not the look. I was not the look that they were looking for. And they would, if I did get an audition, they'd say, you know, you're very talented, obviously, but have you thought about fixing your teeth? And, you know, you, you really need to drop about 15, 20 pounds. And I was almost the thinnest I'd ever been in my life at that time, but I wasn't yeah. camera thin. Yeah, it's so, crazy. I'm sure they told people like Meryl Streep the same kind of stuff. They did, uh, but so, she had she had a more moxie than I did, and I admire her for that. Well, you dove, dove right into the deep end there. I young people ask me, I this well at least what I did. I I started in my case in radio, and I started in the most podunk tiny radio stations, and sort of worked my way along, because at that level they'll let you do everything. You, yeah. If you want to be an announcer, you get to try that. You run the board, you learn how the transmitter works, you write commercial copy and produce things. So um, when you get into the deep end like you, your options are, are much fewer because the lines are so much longer. Well, I really envy you that you taught yourself. I mean, it's it's so clear, Pat, that that you had the goods. You had the goods to do it all. This interview is about you, not me. Well, let's anyway, get, let's get back. Let's get back to it, my right. friend. Well, okay. um, so you, so you say. I mean, I just, I can't cut it here. So, what, what did you think? I do I go back home to Albuquerque? I don't really want to do that. What, what was your next step? Well, I wasn't thinking I was going to leave. I just knew I was not doing very well, and. One of my best friends from college in Albuquerque, she had come to the University of Washington, not as a performer, but as a director, and she was doing well, and she loved Seattle, and, you know, this is pre-texting on the phone. I mean, it used to be too expensive for us to even have a long-distance phone call. We used to write letters, and but she called me one day and said, hey, there's this new airline, and they've got this crazy promotion that if you can get one of these seats, if you buy your ticket on the 16th, you only pay $16 one way to come to Seattle. And, and so she said, quick, go, go down to the airport. See, come visit me. So I managed, I don't, I'm sure this airline went under, but 
I, I managed to come up and visit her in, I think it was October of 1985. And I was here for a long weekend and I absolutely fell ass over tea kettle in love with Seattle. If you wanna ride the space needle or just meet some friendly people Come to Emerald City where nobody's uptight And they know how to make it through a long dark winter night If you wanna kick back, Seattle can do that If you want something fun to do, Seattle can do that too If you wanna live somewhere pretty Then Seattle's a great city Yeah, 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 Seattle's a great city Yeah, 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 the weather isn't always pretty But still Seattle's a great city it was everything that Los Angeles was not. It had all four seasons. It was moody. It 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 had, it had Elliot, sidewalks. It, yeah. yeah, it had Elliott Bay books where you could both be there for hours and nobody bugged you. And there was a cafe downstairs. And people didn't, not every single person you passed on the street was made up to the nines with a perfect body. And they were nice. And not fake nice, like, you know, oh, what do you do? How do you, what, what can you do for me? You know, it was just, and I went to the theater because my friend had directed a production of Jacques Brel is Alive and Living in Paris. And yep. it was real people on stage and it was just oozing, vibrant. And I, I just loved it. And so I went home and I thought, well, maybe someday. And then she called me at Christmas time and said, hey, my roommate, her, uh, he, actually she had he roommate, he and his fiance are, they got engaged and they're going to move in together and I'm going to have half a house open next summer when they get married. Why don't you move up here for a while and see if you like Seattle? And I said, yes, yes. And it gave me- You knew you already did like it. Oh yeah. And I, I just thought, what have I got to lose really? I mean, she said, it's a good theater town. You know, I think you will work a lot more than you're working in LA. And if you don't like it, go back. And so that's what I did. It took me a few months to get my life wrapped up in Los Angeles, but uh, I, I turned 30 <laughs> and I, I hit the road and I had a road trip up here, you know, packed to the gills in my little Mazda back. I smiled so much on the drive up here. I kept thinking my face hurts. What's wrong? And it's because I was mm -hmm. smiling so much. You make me smile like the sun. Fall out of bed. Sing like a bird. Dizzy in my head. Spin like a record. Crazy on a Sunday night. This was around maybe 86 then? Yep. 87? 86, yep. And so I oh, worked you... as a temp when I first got here. I registered with a couple of the agencies. And I was doing a, a stint at the United Way, and I met another temp who said, oh, you're an actress. Oh, you should get in the temp pool at King TV. You'd have fun over there. So she gave me the name of the person in HR, and that is what I did. And they, they took but me. But why would they connect uh, you being an actress with, to working uh, in a secretarial position at King TV? It might as well have, have been, uh, you know, uh, Larry's footlong hot dog well store. i think this other temp just thought you'll have more fun at king tv because she had temped there herself oh i see and okay. and she said oh you'll have fun there it's a really cool building to work in and, you know who knows you might meet some people that, that could be helpful 
So yeah. that was, uh, so I, I did start and I'd only been there several days and I was being, I was filling in as the secretary uh, to the head of HR at that time for all. And what, so this was about 1987 or so? Maybe? 86 still, 86. Okay, 86, yeah. Almost Live began production in 1984. That's so what I understood, it, yes. It, it, it was a thing by the time you got there. Yeah, but it was a thing I was not aware of. <laughs> I was a theater girl, Pat, and we we were not almost live fans. I know. That's you didn't even fair. you didn't even watch that show, right? You did. My only my first association. I know. Oh my gosh, and I feel terrible saying this, but it's the truth. Was Ross came in one day? He had something he had to talk to Christina about. Either that, or she had to talk to him about something. She was the head of HR. Chris Christina Fraser. No, Christina Fraser was in programming. This was Christina oh, that's Morris. Right. Okay. Christina Morris. Okay. Oh yeah, I remember her. And um, you know, he kind of blew through and was a big guy and was busy. And you know, my my impression was that he was really full of himself. And I just hmm. thought, mm, this almost live. This is not something I'm going to like. And so I just didn't really pay attention. <laughs> but he didn't engage you. He didn't say, "Hey, would you like to be on the show?" No, he, he did just not. happened to come. No, yeah, he okay. did not. No. No. <laughs> so, but that even made you less of a fan of a show you already were not a fan of. Well, I just wasn't aware of it because at that yeah. time it was on like Sunday afternoons. So I wasn't watching anything Sunday afternoons. Yeah. 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 You were at the theater. Well, after all. I was probably at a rehearsal. Yes, that's true. There is, there is this divide between the two worlds. Maybe it's not as wide as it used to be, but, you know, like film stars would never be caught dead doing commercials for example and Except in it used Japan. to be yeah if, yeah or someplace where you would never be seen yes of course now you'd be seen all over the world and i um uh or 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 you know they they wouldn't uh film a film star would never deign to be in a tv show and now the cross-pollination is everywhere work is work and and the quality is high as high in TV, if not higher in many cases, than it is in film these days. You know, days, Pat, so. I'd never go to the movies anymore until it comes to my home screen. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way, I'm afraid. I, you know, maybe it speaks to our age and that, or that we don't need to get out of a, a shared roommate situation or whatever. But I, I think TV far surpasses uh, most film, except for the very best crafted film which is hard hard in an hour and a half to two hours to tell a story effectively i think people yeah. don't realize how hard it is to do something short which you know we can talk about that at, at, later yeah. about the skill of doing sketch but yeah so trace so trace you're yes. just minding your own business you're doing theater when you can mm -hmm. you've got a you've got a five-day-a-week job at king you're mostly typing and what are you typing up uh human resource forms and mm -hmm. press releases that kind of stuff oh no that would be marketing that would be a more fun thing actually oh gosh i could go on way too long about what it was like to work in hr which i won't but uh did you like it or hate it i loved the people i did not like the job no didn't yeah. like the job oh. no i've never i've never been good at anything even though i'm good at the people skills the soft skills really good but the actual work, I'm terrible at all of it. Terrible. I mean, I'm a good, oh. I'm a good typist. But yeah. anyway, uh, well, the, the way I ended up getting involved with Almost Live is because 
Wait a minute. I, I should be asking the questions here. Oh, okay. So what sorry. What was the way that you got involved with Army of Love? <laughs> Don't you try funny, to, funny to snatch this interview away from me, Miss <laughs> Tracy. Okay. See, I'm not as nice as you say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really kind of a pushy broad. Working So, Marilyn Mears was an acting friend of mine. We took a workshop together, and apparently she knew Joe Guppy. And in the theater world, you know, he and Nancy were had feet in both worlds. Yep. And she happened to mention, hey, a friend of mine is working at King. You ought to use her in a sketch sometime. And he's like, who, what? And she said, yeah, she's the secretary right now at King TV. And so Joe and Joe came in one day and he said, Hey, um, I know Marilyn. And she said, I'm doing a bit and I need a woman to do something. Would you be interested? And I'm, my eyes light up like, Oh, maybe I'll get something for a reel, you know? And so, sure. So it was a sketch, I think, I don't remember what it was called. It was like, Is this a smart thing or a stupid thing? I mean, that wasn't the title, but the idea was exaggerating you know, a physical comedy thing. And so I did that and it was, it hadn't gone to air yet. And then I don't know whether, honestly, I'm terrible. I can't remember whether it was Keister or Staten. One of the two of them, I think it was Bill came down and said, Hey, I know you did something with Joe and I'm looking to have a face to be in a sketch where we don't want it to be recognizable, almost live talent. We're going to spoof the space needle collapses for all for April fools would you be uh, interested in helping us out with this? Just being a person on the street? I said, absolutely. So that was, you know, we walked outside and he was just holding the microphone and it was like a TV shot where they're getting somebody on the street. And he said, just say, I looked up and it was swaying. And then it was like the bottom went out from under it. And it, it just, I, I don't know. It was like, it just collapsed. I was walking, I was walking along Mercer here and I heard this sound. It was like thunder. And I, I looked up and it was swaying. It just, it was, and it just, it went over. It just, it was, it was like somebody just kicked the bottom out from under it. You wouldn't believe it. Well, I, that's what the first time I saw you. Yeah. On TV. So I guess that was the first well, time. Well, it actually. ended up airing before the thing that Joe and Nancy had ah. done. So that was my debut on the show, which. How did they, how did you get to, to step out from your secretarial job? You say, I'm, I'm going to take my break now and then go out and shoot it or how, how, did you get a dispensation to do that? Well, when I accepted the job to be Christina's um, HR secretary, she said, I know this is not what you want to do with your life. I know that you moved here to be an actress and I can be understanding if you will commit to me to being here for a year, you know, in this job so that I have some stability with a person for a year. I will give you leeway for auditions. If you get cast in something, we'll work around it. So she was fine about that kind of thing. You know, okay. I, I could I could step out and do things like that. So that's how that worked. That's pretty neat. So then so then that happens. And of course, we know the whole story about the yes, uh, how, that's how well the, known. the fallout from all of that. Yes. So whether you wanted to or not, you became a part of this story and uh, got a measure of notoriety from it. Uh, so what happened next? I mean, did they say, hey, you did so well in that. Let's have you be in this bit, too. Well, that was in April, obviously, of 89. And then later that year, Joe and Nancy uh, took off and went to Los Angeles. 
That's right. And that fall of 89, uh, Almost Live started up in the evening as the half an hour format, just sketch and the opening monologue. And it was all guys at that point. So every once in a while, they would need a woman for something. So sometimes it was Ann Billsborough. Mm. Sometimes it was me. The wonderful Ann Billsborough. Here she is in a bit called DJ Priest. <laughs> Uniquely qualified to be a friend and counselor. Father, I really need to talk to you. It's about 23 past the hour now. Weatherman calling for overnight lows of about 32 degrees. What's on your mind, Judy? Oh, well, my boyfriend and I, we've, we've been fighting a lot lately. I've been really angry towards him. And I... Hey, Judy, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let him under your skin. And then you'll begin to make it better. It's about 23 past the hour. DJ Priest. You know, uh, and but they they knew I was a trained actor and that I could probably, you know, remember the lines and that maybe it was just that Christina would let me go. Uh, who knows? But they they seemed to think, hey, she's she melds in well. She does the lines pretty quickly. You know, I just seemed to do okay. So it, I, I got called on a number of times to step in and be John's wife or the woman on the street, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and it wasn't always just tape pieces. I mean, were you, were you performing live too? No, always taped. Always taped. Yeah, always taped. And then um, at the end of the year of 89, kind of in December, I think it was, I should know better, but you know, November, December, um, my father uh, in Albuquerque was declining rapidly. He had cancer that was advancing quickly. And I decided I, I wanted to be with him and be his caretaker. So I actually quit my job and got on a plane with my Siberian Husky and flew back to be with my dad at the end of his life, which ended up not being very long. And my brother had just died uh, in September. So we had a double whammy uh, in my family. We'd already lost my mom uh, when I was 24. So here this was about nine years later, and both my brother and my dad passed away within about three months of each other. And your, your brother died of what? Of heart problems. He, you know, in the middle of the night, my, his wife, you know, essentially his girlfriend wife, woke up and he, he was kind of thrashing and um, not conscious and was gone and they tried to revive him, but they couldn't. I mean, it was ultimately with an autopsy, they revealed that his heart had dissected in an area and he, he had died from heart problems. Well, we'll get to your yeah. dramatic story in a moment, yeah. but at that point, did, so I did was, so it I seem like a one-off and you didn't think there was cardiac uh, issues in your family history beyond him? I knew that I had an arrhythmic heart. I, at age 24, uh, both Mark and I had been diagnosed as having heart arrhythmias that we were on medication for. We both knew that we had something that lots of people have, which I don't want to freak people out, but it's something to pay attention to if you've been told you have it, which is called mitral valve prolapse, where uh, one of the valves in your heart doesn't close cleanly and there's a leakage of blood. And if it gets too loose and funky, it can really, it can be very dangerous. So, but here we were, you know, he was 39 when he died and I was what, 32, 33, something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was 
being very careful about my medication and being good. And, you know, I'd never had any problems. So I did know that I had that. But when he passed away, of course, I went through a battery of tests to make sure that I was not at risk and it seemed to be fine. You know, I was in really good shape at that time. And they said, just keep doing what you're doing. So I did. So then you, after you uh, had to say goodbye to your brother and your dad, mm -hmm. you, you, you still had your place in Seattle. Yep. So you came back. I did. And uh, you'd already quit. You didn't take a leave of absence. You quit your mm -hmm. job at King, right? I did. I did. So, so how did it happen that you became full-time at uh, Almost Live? Well, I came back to King and I said, hey, can I come back to the temp pool, you know, sort of start again. And they put me back in the temp pool and I, I did stints all around the station. And at one point, um, again, I can't remember, this is terrible that I can't remember this, but um, we can talk about why I have memory issues. But <laughs> anyway, uh, either Keister or uh, Staten came to me at one of my uh, stints and said, hey, we're looking to put a woman into the cast again. And we really like working with you. You seem to have a good chemistry with us. And we really think you're good as an actor, but we can't hire you just as an actor. You have to write for us as well. That's right. the job. Yeah. So everybody, everybody in the, in the cast, whoever was on, on the cast, you, you, we, we didn't have the luxury of having just actors, oh, no. just writers, just lighting people. You had to do everything. Yeah, which was so cool, but also intimidating. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and you, I know, had a lot of acting experience, but had you written any comedy before? Nope. <laughs> Other than, um, well, I, I mean, I hadn't written comedy per se. I'd done a lot of comedy and I had to write. I mean, I, I got through graduate school, so I had to write but you have a but you had a sense of, comic a sense of rhythm and stuff like that you know right? my dad was funny like your dad pat i, I mean yeah. and i think that had a lot to do with it and my brother always loved comedy always had me listen to richard Pryor. how can women be so cool when you angry don't you tell me i love you don't you see yes dear i'm going for a walk <laughs> a walk on a fight. He used to listen to Bill Cosby records. I want you to build an ark. Right. <laughs> What's an ark? <laughs> Alan Sherman. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Here I am at Sonata. Camp is very entertaining, and they say we'll have some fun if it stops raining. I had a basis in, and then when I was at UNM, my acting coach, who was really influential in my life, she put me on to Nichols and May. Hello, doctor. Hello, hello uh, Mr. Wyden. Doctor, I wanted uh, to mention that I won't be in on Friday because of uh, Christmas Eve. I'll be spending it, you know, with my wife and kid, and I have to devote that day. You mean you just miss your session? No, I'm afraid I'm going to have to on Friday. Dude, I'd like to examine this reluctance of yours to come in on Friday. But it's not a question of reluctance. Do you feel uh, I'm taking the time from your... Uh, uh, no, no, I children? assure you, Doctor, why? absolutely not. I just promised the kids well, that I, I would I'd spend like that to, day with I'd them. like to know why you can't take one hour and... Um, 
come in for your session. Doctor, look, please, doctor, will you, will you believe No, I'm, I'm just interested in why, uh, when we had a session planned on Friday, that you cannot take the time to come in and keep your appointment. Doctor, please don't I, be, I be upset. I'm not upset. I, I really am not upset. I'm just, I'm curious. Uh, if it means so sake, much to you, I will come in. It means, uh, to me, it means only that you are my patient that will facilitate a cure, but what it means to you is the uh, thing that interests me. Doctor, I just wanted to spend it with the kids. I promised the kids. And you feel that an hour away from the kids for your analyst will be too much time? So, you know, I kind of knew the basics of what was funny, but it was a pretty steep learning curve. But but I think I was encouraged. Look, just just we'll help you, but we got to find out what your sense of humor is yeah. like, what you think is funny. Well, I, and so well, I I did a, I did a few and turned them in on a Friday, and Staten hired me on Monday. How about so. that? I see. Yeah. I'm like, I'm I'm convinced that you can't make you can't teach somebody entirely how to do something. You can't teach somebody how to be funny you know they're either yeah. funnier or they're not so you had all of that in you as you must realize by now it's just nothing you had been called upon to do yet and uh, and uh, to get hired off really one swing at writing some comedy pieces must have felt pretty good well it did and i and i will own that it was i was the right person in the right place at the right time and sometimes that's just how it works yeah. Because I was very nervous about, quite honestly, I was scared to death of Mike Boydston. Mike Boydston, for people who might not know, was uh, like the do-everything camera guy editor for the show. Pretty much a one-man band for a period of time. And he had shot a few of the uh, sketches I'd been involved with in the field, and I just wasn't used to that kind of back and forth and somebody being quite that vocal, yeah. but as it turned out, um, of course, now, of course, I, I know Mike much better and I, I, I just know better, but I've never been good at confrontation about anything in my life. And so he just scared me. I was afraid he was going to yell well, at he, me. So his, his, <laughs> his demeanor is rather brusque. Uh, I, I remember one time uh, and, and he, he, was, he was married and he and his wife, when they would have a conversation together, they would get very animated. They, they weren't necessarily fighting, but they both yeah. gesticulated. They swung their arms around and they, that's just how they communicated with each other. And Mike used right. to tell the story and I, I'm trying to remember it exactly. And I won't, but he, he basically, the, he and his wife have pulled up in a, in a parking lot at a sh shopping center or someplace. And they're having one of those animated conversations in their car, you know, a lot of movement yeah. in there, hands flailing. And, and then a, a knock comes on the door of the car and Mike turns around to see a guy telling him, you know, roll the window down, which he does. And the guy has a gun in Mike's face <gasps> oh! and, and says to Mike's wife, is this guy bothering you lady? <laughs> she said, well, no, no, we're just, we're just having a conversation. You sure? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just, we're just talking. We're not fighting or anything. <laughs> All right, and so that's Mike. That those are the kind of things that would happen to Mike. Okay, so good. You, now people realize I'm not a total shrinking violet, but I was. I was a little scared of Mike. Yeah. So, but I had a friend, and I was putting off writing my um, audition sketches. And someone said to me, Tracy, this is an opportunity for you to stop being a secretary and to act. Even if you don't get it, you have to try out for this. 
So I did. And I'm, and, and, and I got it. So anyway, that's great. So then (laughs) it was off to the races for you. You just started winding up in every sketch practically because you know, well, I was the only woman on the show. Come on. (laughs) And, and, and that was the brilliance of, of them hiring you, I think, because you could do everything. You could be a floozy. You could be a a sweet little old lady. You could be a grandma. You you could be a sexy broad. Um, You had a lot of famous, wonderful bits, but, but arguably this might be the signature bit. The worst girlfriend in the world. A part that you played multiple times. Tell us how that came about. Well, John, very sweetly at one point after I'd been on the show for a, a couple of months, yeah. he, he said, he said, I'm looking for someone to play a self-centered female monster. And I thought of you, you know, that wasn't it at all to tell you the truth. Um, he, he said, Hey, let's go get some coffee in the, you know, the King coffee shop. I, I want to talk to you. And so he said, you know, we don't know where the show is going to go. And I, my, my main thing is to make sure that if this happens to be the last season of the show, that everybody leaves with a good reel. So what kind of stuff would you like to do on the show? And I honestly wasn't sure what to say. And so I said, well, I'm really, I'm not confident about my writing per se, and that wouldn't be what I would be pursuing necessarily, but anything that we could do where I got a little bit of a chance to showcase my acting chops would be fun to be somebody i'm so, not yeah i didn't say that but but that is part of the fun of acting right oh of course yes of course and i would say about the worst girlfriend you know you you would ask me knowing that we were going to have this conversation to think about what some of my favorite bits and least favorite bits would be but i would say that the worst girlfriend was one of the hardest for me to do hmm. and uh John came in to a pitch meeting one day and he had this idea and he didn't have it scripted, but he had the song. She's the worst girlfriend you've ever had. Every time you think about it, you get mad. The worst girlfriend in the world. A psycho bitch from hell, yes, that's the girl. The worst girlfriend, you know it's true. She thinks it's funny, but the joke's on you. She's the worst girlfriend in the world. He'd come up with this about the worst girlfriend in the world. And, uh... And of course, I knew I was going to get to play her. Tonight on The Worst Girlfriend in the World, The Worst Girlfriend joins the band. You act like you don't care. I do care. Then why is it I never see you anymore? Jason, well, we're on in a minute, okay, man. All right, you see, right. you've always got some stupid concert or some other thing to do other than me. There's 15,000 people out there waiting oh, for fine. us. 15,000 strangers more important than me. Come oh, on, no, man, there's going to be a riot. Oh, my God, Come they on. just go to your stupid thing. No, no, no. So oh, yes, it was yes. based on, I think, some of his personal experience, but also his observation of one of his best friend's relationship mm-hmm. with kind of a crazy, uh, very high-maintenance girlfriend. That That's they, a better way to that, put it, high-maintenance. Very high-maintenance. And that it, just the thought that these guys put up with so much from this woman. And then, of course, the classic first one, they're all in therapy about, well, the sex was good, yeah, you know, yeah. even though she she burned my couch and did all these very terrible things. So she walked away from the movie, got in my car, and wrecked it. <laughs> Again. How long had you been seeing her? About three months. 
Why did you see her for that long? The sex was really good. And, uh... So, I know we would, we would shoot these, these scenes, and, and he, John would be really nice to me and let me do it, do it, and then he'd say, okay, that's fine, that's good, really good, but do it again, and, and don't be so nice. You'd be even colder, you know? Yeah, no, it's good direction. So, what do you think, babe? Pretty nice, huh? You have a stupid stereo. And I hate this music! And you have an ugly TV! Honey? And I hate Honey, put that down! I've always hated this! And then she broke all my records, and she kicked in the TV, and then she set the couch on fire. Again. How many couches had she set on fire prior to this? Five. Why didn't you leave her after she set the first couch on fire? Well, the sex was really good. And, uh... Yeah. And you wore, you wore this short skirt kind of, you know, uh, oh, very... That was the fun. Honestly, Pat, that was the fun of it. It was getting to create what Jill looked like. I went to this store that no longer exists, but anybody who's old enough to remember it, Jay Jacobs. Oh yeah, sure. And I found the flooziest stuff that <laughs> I could, I mean the tightest little black skirt and this crazy tight midriff top with the flowy sleeves and then these boots and oh, I had so much fun creating the physical. And that, that was a lot of how I made Jill work for me was creating her physicality. Yeah, no question. You know, it's just so. brilliant. It's just an indelible character from the show. Jill! Listen, I need to crash here for just a couple of days and God, I need a drink. Hey, do you have any tonic? You said you were going out for cigarettes and I haven't seen you in seven months. Are you seeing somebody else? No. Are you? No, no. Uh, where, where's my car? I think it's in Montana. Montana? You left my car in Montana? Uh, and so, but what, you, you probably said this, but you said it was one of the hardest things you had to do on the show. Was it just went outside your comfort zone because this is a, you were inhabiting a, a person that you didn't really know? Yeah. I, I mean, yes. I'm, I'm trying to think. I, I've played self-centered characters before, but she was just so matter-of-fact and cold about stuff. Yeah, sure. And, and, and could flip on a dime and, and just be cruel. And it, it, the timing of some of it was, was tough for me. Yeah, but you. So I you know that sounds crazy for a sketch comedy show, but yeah. no, I get it. I do get it, and and I'm I was always wondering if not not necessarily just from that recurring bit, but from other things, and your platform for a long time as the only regular woman on the show. When you went out in public, uh, did, did, were there guys hitting on you? Maybe I'm so oblivious to that kind of thing. Honest to God, I never know when someone's flirting with me. I really don't. I'm terrible with that. That's probably why I'm still single. You didn't. But, you didn't walk around in that dress, did you? 
No, I did not. Although I will say I was always with people if I was in it because we were shooting. I remember we did a sketch, uh, Carnival Ride Operators. That was a Bob Nelson bit. Yeah. Oh, well, of course, they're all brilliant. But I wore that outfit because it was this floozy with her kids flirting with the Carnival Ride Operator. That's right. And I had that on walking through the Puyallup Fair in these like four inch spike heels, (laughs) but I was walking with a camera crew and stuff, but I'm telling you, yeah, I noticed people looking at me for sure. That's funny. That's funny. (laughs) Are you looking for an exciting new career? Have other training schools let you down? Then you should consider entering the exciting world of carnival ride operators. Sorry, honey, you're too short. There's nothing I can do. Oh, please, can't you ride just once? Oh, yeah, come on. Really? Oh, can you come with us? Sure. Uh, you made me think of something else, and then it went right out of my head because that's—that's oh, that's how oh, well. tiny my head is. Uh, mm-hmm. But you—you just—you did everything. You were always a, a lot of restaurant scenes. Yes. Oh, we did so. Oh, Pat, I tried. I started before this. I tried to count how many times you and I were married in the show. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. we were always married. So many funny bits. I that hilarious one where it was like, "What are you thinking?" Remember that yes, one? Yeah, what are you thinking? You've been awfully quiet over there. What are you thinking? Nothing. You always say that. You must be thinking something. No, not really. Nothing at all? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about this. How come they spell the word gooey duck, G E O duck? That's nutty. I mean, that'd be like geoduck. That doesn't make any sense. You ever notice that? It's wacky. That's what you were thinking? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. A little bit more of the ride. Also, uh, today, a guy cuts me off on the freeway. 60 miles an hour, we're in these machines of destruction, and he's talking on his car phone. That's so irritating. I mean, better he should conduct that important business he's working on than to worry about whether people like me make it home in one piece or not. Hello, world! Is the whole place nuts or is it just me? Well, you know... I mean, why stop with the car phone? Why not go ahead and bake a cake while you're driving home? (laughs) Yeah, we'll get the Duncan Hines car cake mix. Or or you can pick up a hobby. Maybe do the Balsam Wood car carving kit. to do a little whittling on his drive home. And of course, this guy goes on for a long time until the end. My old man. Oh boy, what a treat he was. You think Dad could have spent a little time with me? I mean, why did he even have kids in the first place if he wasn't going to do anything with them? Like, take them hunting once in a while. Richard, your father was blind. Okay, but he wasn't totally blind. I mean, some larger objects appeared as blurs to him. He could have shot at a moose or something. Richard, Richard, you know, when I asked you what you were thinking, what I'm really asking is, do you think about us at all? Think about us? Yeah. What about me? Do you still love me? Whoa, sure, honey, yeah. Good. I mean in the sense that love is really nature's way of tricking us into reproduction. Kind of a biological delusion. Shut up. That's why we created the myths of romance and fate and all that stuff in the first place. Shut up. There are five billion people on this planet. Are we supposed to believe that we were meant for each other just because we had a math class together in high school? Shut up!
I, I thought you wanted to know what I was thinking. Well, I did. And now I do. And I'm sure glad that you finally opened up, honey. Okay. How is your lasagna? You really want to know? No. What are you thinking? And when the one where you played the librarian that I had to comfort because Joel was hassling you. Oh, I you. forgot about that. I love that bit. Going off to your job to put some low-income people out on the street so you can build a skyscraper? Huh? Or I know. You probably helped build some chemical that poisons porpoises, right? Huh? Answer me, you porpoise poisoner! And then, then he called me a porpoise poisoner. Me, a porpoise poisoner. I felt so violated. But you're not a porpoise poisoner, are you, honey? No. No, you're a librarian, aren't you? Yes, I check out books. That's what made it so hurtful that somebody could just walk up to you and say something like that. Well, the next time he tries that, you just tell him to shut up and leave you alone. I can't do that. Yes, you can. That would be mean. You just try it. Okay, I'll try. Okay. I love that bit. And the one where you were so ticked off, you kept saying to Bob, why do you stop staring at my wife's breasts? Do <laughs> <laughs> you something you like, Richard? I just noticed you're staring at my wife's breasts. Uh, I don't believe I was. <laughs> well, just don't. Does it look well, like I wasn't, okay? Good. Uh, how are the kids, Pam? Oh, absolutely wonderful. Tristan loves kindergarten, and Sarah won an award at her elementary school for a story she's written. Oh, That's great. great. Hey, you know, um, Richard's about to win an award. It's called the award for staring at my wife's breasts. For God's sakes, Tom, I wasn't even looking at Tina. I'm starting to feel a little uncomfortable here. Oh, I'm starting to make you feel uncomfortable, huh? Oh. Honey, honey, I drop it. Nobody's staring. I'm sorry, Richard. Friends? Friends. <clears throat> Would you mind passing me the nachos over there? Would I mind passing you my wife's breasts? No! I can't believe this. <laughs> and then he ends up staring at us while we're sleeping. There was, there was a bit I wrote, and you, 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 were, you were really good in it, of course. You and Bill Stanton were in it. And the bit was called Cafe Crappé. Oh, gosh, yes. Welcome to the Cafe Crappé. May I start you with something? Uh, it's a very exclusive <laughs> restaurant. And you and, yes. you and Bill are trying it for the first time. And uh, the, the dirty secret is that there's nobody working there. I'm the only guy there. So I take your order for appetizers, go running out the back door of the restaurant, down an alley to a convenience store where I pick up some pork rinds, bring them back on a platter, and present them as what you just ordered. And here we go, folks. There are your appetizers. Well, those look interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> have you uh, had a chance to look at the wine list, sir? Oh, yes, we have. Um, could we get two glasses of the 91 De Stefano Cabernet, please? Uh, that's an excellent choice, sir. Thank you. I'll be right back with that. Good? These are great. Are they? Oh. <laughs>
And then once again, out the back door I go, down to the convenience store, pick up some, I don't know, any green springs or something, and bring it back as if it was the wine you ordered. And so here we go, your wine. Oh, you know what? We ordered a Cabernet. So the bit was basically predicated on the idea that people, uh, you know, when you when it comes to wine, they get they become wine snobs. They become food snobs. Predicated on not just using their own brain and their own taste buds to tell them what is this? This is a pork rind. This is this is ridiculous. Uh, I love that bit. That was fun. I did too. You were really good at that. Uh, one time we got. You, I'm surprised you didn't have a heart event. You you ran so so many times down that alley. I did. The only oh. thing I wish I'd done differently, as I keep coming back to the table, I'm a little bit exhausted. But I should have been soaking in sweat. I thought that True. would have added more verisimilitude to the thing. But but I, it's still I still like the bit a lot. Oh yeah. And uh, you and uh, and Nancy Guppy. At some point, Nancy uh, decides, I, I don't want to live in L.A. anymore, and she and mm -hmm. Joe move back. But so uh, Nancy d wants to come back to Almost Live, and now all of a sudden, there will be, this was kind of your exclusive turf. In it was you, for two years. I yeah, know. You were, the, you were the woman on the yeah, show. Now, yeah. here comes this interloper <laughs> coming coming back again to a show that she left for Greener Pastures, and <laughs> It could have arguably gone not well at all, but uh, and Nancy says as well that you were just the, a peach. You were so welcoming, no. not threatened. Thought it, you know, I maybe relieved that finally I got somebody I can talk to around here. You know, I wouldn't disagree at all with what she says, but um, you know, if it had been another woman who hadn't previously been associated with Almost Live, it might not have been so smooth for me. Hmm. But I mean, she really, I respected so much that she had worked in LA and had the chops. And so, um, you probably felt you could both learn from each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know that it, I don't feel that anybody ever tried to push us together. Like, well, let them do the women bits. You know, it wasn't like that, but I think that there might've been a little feeling that, well, we'll let, we'll, let's see what the girls do. You know, not, don't, that didn't happen. But at the same time, I think there was an expectation in some ways of, yeah. well, they'll, they'll really vibe on and bring us that element, you know? And Nancy very, I don't know what she said in her interview with you, but I know for her always, it was, no, I don't want to bring the women's point of view. I just want to be what I, I think is funny. And I really appreciated that. I was yeah. looking forward yeah. to having someone else with the feminine point of view so that we could do some things with two women. And there were a lot of those. And, and one standout, of course, is the Linwood Beauty Academy. Oh! <laughs> we'll start with your hair and let you choose between the three basic styles. The poofed hair, the big scary hair, or... The Linwood patented wallabangs. I don't even remember who wrote that. That's got to be Bob. Oh, yeah, signature. No, it was Bob. It had to be Bob's because of <laughs> just some of the writing. He would be the only one that would say only found in nature or no, only found in Linwood, not in nature blue. Yeah. Three designer colors to choose from. Blue. Really, really, really blue. And not found in nature, only in Linwood blue. 
Isn't it? Is it? Something like that. I think. But it was Bob's piece, wasn't it? Or was it yours? If it was smart, it was Bob's. But like Lennon and McCartney and, uh, you know, Harrison and Ringo, we nobody knew. uh, Nobody was trying to take credit for writing anything. Let me take over the interview for a second, because there's something I did want to say is that. Damn it. it. When did I lose control? I know I am. Well, I'm just pushy, pushy broad. You know, when I came on, I think Bill, who had the hiring decision, he knew that I was going to be a real newbie about TV and what, what my duties were going to be and that my strong suit would be performing, but that I did have a pretty good sense of humor. I would come to the pitch table though. I wouldn't have fleshed out scripts like Bob. I mean, Bob was a master and I would come though. My dad always loved puns and wordplay. And so that for me was huge. And that's where I thought, well, I have some funny ideas and I don't know whether they're corny or not, but I'm going to bring them anyway. And some of my favorite stuff that I brought, I would bring in the concept and then you guys would build it and we would run with it. Something yeah. like, and, and people who are listening now, if they weren't watching TV, then, you know, this was a very topical popular show, but was doing a takeoff instead of 30 something. We did nerdy something. Yes. Michael, my needs aren't being met. I don't feel fulfilled. Michael, I need more. Well, how about some Jiffy Pop, <laughs> You know, that was my idea. And I came in with one that was sort of like those cards that um, I think they were friends of Keister's that used to create them. The, they looked like old 50s posters, but updated to current times. And so I came in with the idea, what if we did a, a movie spoof called I Married an Engineer? And, you know, Great ideas. going. Which but, leads me... But yeah. what, let me finish real quick, and then you can cut this. this is, I know, I'm so bad, I'm so bad. She's taking then, over, I don't know what to do with it. I know. Go ahead. Okay, I'll be quiet. Well, the, they developed it into, it would be easier. I married an engineer, it was a little ambitious, but date with an engineer. And it just fell into place <laughs> about, you know, we shot at Nye's apartment and... It, it was just so hilarious to me how you guys seamlessly, to me, you could take an idea and just blow it up and run with it. She thought she was going on a dream date. Yes, I'm excited. You know, he says in his ad that he's a professional man. And so, now I'm hoping maybe he's a lawyer or, or a doctor or something. But soon... She'll live through every woman's nightmare. Oh my God, this, he's here. I'll call you later, okay? All right, I will. Bye. Date with an engineer. That was the fun of the show. Yeah. And, and that, that leads me in a wonderfully natural way. Thank you for taking over the interview. <laughs> You're welcome. To, to one day you came in and you pitched uh, another idea based on a very popular show called ER. And you said, <laughs> we need to do a show called ER. And I, and so I, we all went away and I came back with the seed of your idea and, and had a bit written called ERR uh, and, and, er, and, and it was this hospital where they screw up all the time. Best of intentions, but not not such a great follow through. Yeah. Yeah, and and so we we got I knew somebody at uh, Evergreen Hospital, and we got an entire wing of a hospital to shoot this bit, and it would be like um, mistaken surgeries, 
people that uh, came in for one thing or, or they were just awkwardly presented. Uh, and I remember Bob Nelson sits down and he says this. I have some good news for you. How wonderful. Oh, I'm sorry. It's actually the exact opposite. It's bad news. Sorry. It's E-R-R. Just, just, they don't have the physician's touch. Let's put it that way. Yeah, so not this, the greatest bedside manner. Yeah. But so the bit was on tape. We played the bit and it was in a show. And then, and then I think that bit was followed by a live piece uh, where there was a, we were actually smoking in the studio, which you weren't supposed to do, but there was some cigarette smoke wafting around. And, uh, and in hindsight, maybe that wasn't such a good idea for the cast, particularly you, because uh, as that show is finished and the audience is applauding, we would usually stop the show, the credits would run, and then we would remain behind and standing in front of the audience to take questions from the audience. And, and in the middle of somebody's question, uh, you keeled over. That's what I've heard. And you don't remember it, do you? No. In fact, I, I wanted you to tell what you remember, because obviously, I, I, well, for people who don't know, I, I dropped dead of cardiac arrest. But because of that, uh, I have had you just, to, you just before I constructed. And then I dropped out of cardiac arrest. But I did. Enough about that. Oh no, not enough. But <laughs> but just that's what what happened. If people are listening and and don't know the story, is that you know from what I've been told, because I don't remember yeah. any of it, but that Keister was answering a question, and I Bob tells me, I I turned to him and I whispered, "What? I, I don't feel you." And then I just you know, hit the floor. So yeah. you can take it from here because I, I, I don't know what happened. I mean, I know, but I don't remember it. You can't cry because you're laughing at me. I'm down. I'm really down. I'm down. Down on the ground. Well, everybody remembers it uh, differently, so they'll have their own versions of it. All I remember is that I saved your life. Well, I've heard that. Yeah. 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 Well, everybody else was standing around gawking and not sure what to do. I came forward with the cool head that I've always displayed. Mm -hmm. Tiny, tiny a head as it is, but it's cool. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, and and so I think the immediate assumption of the audience, because this wouldn't be unlike you, to tell you the truth, that you did this whole falling over thing because uh, the audience thought, she's just doing some shtick here because we just saw that hospital bit earlier in the show. And this is, she's doing a callback. Very clever. Show off. But it wasn't a callback, and you really did go to the floor. And anybody who was up close and saw your face knew immediately. She's either the greatest actress of, in the world, or she's in real trouble here. <laughs> you, you turned a color that is not seen on a human body. Mm. And... Uh, and you were in full cardiac arrest. You, you've told me later, and I've read that people who have this sort of thing called a sudden cardiac arrest uh, have a, like a one in 20 chance of uh, seeing another day. Mm-hmm. And and it just so happened, however, when somebody tried to, you know, the old theater thing, is there a doctor in the house? Which you don't well, really want to say when you've spoofed ER, but yeah. yeah. And then I think somebody laughed at that. And But then these two fellows... Uh, you know this part of the story because it's been told to you so many times, but these two fellows jump forward who, um, as it turns out, were uh, paramedics with the fire department. They just happened to be in the audience that night. 
I'll, I'll, I'll amend that a little bit. Um, the first fellow that stood up, um, he was a volunteer firefighter. And so he was very well trained in CPR, even as a volunteer firefighter, he knew what to do. And uh, as John remembers it, it, John asked, does, does anybody here have medical training? And we did not have a doctor or a nurse or, you know, as I say, when I do my talks, we didn't even have a veterinary tech. But this young guy stood up and he said, I think she's making agonal respirations, which are the weird breathing sounds that a body that's dying, but that system is still trying to function. You just did this sort of like, yeah, you know, a really yeah. long pause would go by. I remember that noise. <clears throat> and so John just said, can you help? And so he ran down and he put his fingers to my throat and didn't have any pulse. So he just yelled, call 911. And so he began my CPR. And then there was another fellow who was a police officer who obviously also had been trained. So they kind of tag teamed my CPR until the firefighters arrived. Yep. And as John and everybody else has told me, they opened up the back of the studio so that they could come in that way because the front of the building, when we were doing a taping on a Saturday night, was all shut up. And we had the audience stay in their seats because yes. we didn't want them getting yep. in the way of the ambulance coming in. All right. And so the firefighters came in and did the assessment. And uh, the didn't, they have I, to, didn't they have to run the paddles on you like six times to yep. get your heart going again? Yep. Yeah. They they did the first thing where they had to cut my clothes off and place the paddles. And and then Medic One showed up after them and they took over. The firefighters did my first two defibrillation shocks at the lowest level that they'll shock you to begin with. Shock me! And that wasn't doing any good, so the medics came and they did that intubation where they put that thing down in your throat. Shock me! And they did it another four times. And actually, I guess on the fifth defibrillation, my heart came back uh, to beating on its own a little bit, but then it went back into what's called ventricular fibrillation. And then on the sixth one, they shot me with some drugs that, that help stabilize and my heart finally began to beat on its own again. So they packed me up. The thing that they heard that was so funny was they had to actually move the camera cables over my body so they could take them from studio B into studio A and do the news. Yeah. The news, <laughs> has the news have always priority. goes on, you know? Yeah. Well, you became the news that night. Uh, oh. and, and I remember we all, <laughs> very soberly went up to Harborview Hospital where you were being Yes, tell me about that. I, I always love to hear about this part of the story from everybody's point of view. Well, I just remember we were sitting in the waiting area there on pins and needles, waiting. We didn't hear any word. You know, we were very anxious. Some of us were pacing. That was me. Mm -hmm. And then others were sitting down and uh, everybody deals with these things differently. And I remember as the evening wore on there was a television set up in the corner of this waiting area and almost live came on and uh i can remember a few of the almost live people saying hey, let's, let's see how the show went <laughs> And I, and I remember just taking great umbrage at that. And I, you know, so I just, so I had to leave the area for a while, mm -hmm. but everybody, you know, dealt with it differently. And then what I remember is that the attending physician or surgeon or doctor or whoever, he might've been a janitor for all I know, he, <laughs> he comes in, gives us an update. And then at one point, I'll never forget it. He says, yeah, besides, besides 
the physical trauma that your friend has undergone here. Uh, there's going to be an, an, a, a huge psychological aspect to this. Uh, as she recovers, it, it's, it's going to take a long time. She's going to need support from all of you. This could be weeks, could be months before she's anywhere close to normal again. And it was pretty sobering. Yeah. And then, two weeks later, you're back on the stinking show again. <laughs> well, there isn't a whole lot in my head that had to be fixed. There's just not a whole lot up there. Because but... you don't remember any of it. Well... Uh, no, I, I, yeah, that's kind of a blessing, I guess. Right? You know, I have in the 25 years since this has happened, had the opportunity to meet a number of other people who are survivors. And we talk about that because everybody has a slightly or, or a greatly different experience. It depends on how quickly they were able to get to you and do CPR. And I'm yeah. so fortunate that the guy who came down, he was young and he knew how to do it. And it was about six minutes of very vigorous CPR that I got. So I had probably only been on the ground at the most, maybe a minute, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I don't know, before I got my CPR. So I got oxygen to my brain, which is the most important part of, I mean, it's what's keeping your body viable to be saved. You yeah. need the defibrillation shock if you're having an arrhythmia. I won't turn this into my lecture. I mean, I wasn't having a heart attack, which is a different very serious cardiac event, but heart, heart attack is usually a blockage and you usually stay conscious and you can get to a hospital, but uh, cardiac arrest has to be treated on the scene or you won't survive, you know, or if you do, yeah. your brain is going to be toast. So we, we, it, we talk about, about, you know, it, if yeah. this at all happened, you say goodnight, everybody see you, you hop in your car, mm -hmm. you're driving home, could have happened then. Oh, sure. And, and that would be a been different it. story. Yeah. Very different story. So I, you know, I sound very sanguine about it right now, I suppose, because I've had many years to think about it and to learn about it. But I, you know, my, my family all lived out of Seattle. Um, I had a sister in Albuquerque. I had a sister and her family in California. And it took time for them to fly up. And my almost live family and a couple of other close friends I had and some good friends that also worked at King TV, they were there with me those first couple of days when I I was Looney Tunes. Yeah, I remember they had you on some good stuff. I Well, so. and I couldn't hold on to anything more than about 20 or 30 seconds. So I was like this broken record that just kept skipping. Now, what happened again? Well, now, what happened again? We tell you and you tell yeah. what happened again? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, was... fortunately, they, I was one of those that... I was in really healthy condition other than my heart, which, as you said, you alluded, the cigarette smoke, because I was one of the actors who was smoking live on the show, and I'd smoke which, in rehearsal. And, you, and you're not a smoker. And the... I'm not a smoker, so the nicotine would have affected me more yeah. than a, a regular smoker. My doctor, my cardiologist at that time, was trying to have me step down off of my medication to see if 
I would still be having arrhythmias because there had been a study that people who had been on their beta blockers for a long time frequently didn't need it. So I didn't have my protective medication. No. I probably had a jolt of adrenaline. We did a sketch about Brad Pitt live in the studio right before. It was really yeah. intricate timing and I never got it right in rehearsal. So I said to Bob right before we went on, oh gosh, my heart's beating so fast because I was afraid I was going to screw it up. So I had extra adrenaline in my body. You know, it's all that thing made yeah. for a perfect storm. So, Well, um, I, I wanted to mention one other bit, but I'm going to do it at the end of this. I just wanted to, just a question I, I wrap up with. Um, and then I want to ask you one other thing, but I, yes, I've yacked I, way I, too much, Pat. I apologize. I, I am such a black well, yeah, It wouldn't have happened if he didn't keep taking over this thing <laughs> and trying to make it better than it is. I'm not um, trying to make it better. I'm just taking, trying to make it more me, me, me. <laughs> you, uh, you turned this, uh, well, I, I guess I was going to ask you, the, the Almost Live show ended in 1999. Uh, I don't know what you remember about that day when you heard the news. But for all of us, it was a thing like, okay, all right, now what am I going to do? What's, what am I going to do for a career? Uh, since then, people should know that you have become an extremely sought-after keynote speaker. You've spoken all over the United States, indeed all over the world, with a keynote address called I Died Laughing. And you basically tell your story, but it's not just a story because you want people to be aware. Uh, if they have symptoms, they should check their own family history. Uh, you'll never know, Tracy. You, you may have saved countless lives with just the information you've given to people. So that's kind of a legacy that you can really be proud of. Thank you. For lay audiences who really don't know the difference between heart attack and cardiac arrest, I say think of your body as a building. And if it's heart attack, it's probably like a plumbing issue. And you're going to get some hints that there's some problems going on. Just like if you've been putting too much grease down your kitchen sink, it will start running slower. You're going to know, you know, things aren't going to be going that well. And your body, if that's what you've been doing, if you've got plaque building up or those kind of plumbing issues, your body's going to talk to you too. You may be short of breath. You might start having odd discomfort. It may not be the elephant sitting on your chest, but you're going to get some signs. Pay attention to those signs. So I always ask, do you think each of, the, each of these members, do you think you would be where you are today if it hadn't been for Almost Live? Oh, no. In your case, uh, you, <laughs> your answer is, well, I don't think I'd be a keynote speaker talking about having sudden cardiac arrest. Oh, gracious. I probably would not. Well, who knows? I, I'm, I, I, who knows? Uh, that night that I had my cardiac arrest, I was, again, right place, right time, right city. My brother, who had a very similar condition, did not have that result. Mm -hmm. Most cardiac arrest does happen at home, like it happened with my brother. I feel like, you know, there are a lot of people, and I, I am placing no judgment, but when they have really terrible health things happen, you know, they say, why me? And I, I've always felt, well, why not me? I mean, bad things come into all of our lives. And I had the best possible result when something really bad happened to mine. And I'm not that nice of a person. I'm not that altruistic to think, well, I have to take this and do something good in the world with it. I, it, it was just kind of when Almost Live ended, 
I'd been uh, over the last four years asked by some hospitals and organizations, the Heart Association and Medtronic, the people who make the device that is implanted in my body that now protects my heart if I have a dangerous rhythm. I had done some speaking for them. Um, I did it gratis because I was very, very gratis, very grateful. And, but, well, maybe now that I'm not doing almost live, maybe I can take this experience and do something with it that both benefits people and hopefully I can make something of a living at it so that I can keep doing it. And it was a learning curve. It's lonelier being the only person on stage. I miss my almost live and my theater compadres. I meet all kinds of really cool people. Yeah. But I don't know them very long. It's a pretty, it's a pretty nomadic, lonely existence. I stay in touch as best I can. I mean, I think people, hopefully, who enjoyed our show and are listening to this, will be glad to know that we, as a merry band of troopers have all stayed in touch and are fond of each other but life takes you different roads and i'm i'm grateful it has been affected as has everyone's life by the greater world you know when we've had economic downturns clients don't have the money to hire speakers so it's been it's been a roller coaster but one that i'm grateful to have been on i i miss performing but not enough to go after it actively anymore. You know, I think that that time in my life has naturally passed and, and it may happen again. I loved doing radio theater when we did that because that afforded us a chance to perform without all of the challenges that come with mounting a full production. September 8th, I sat up all night with Lucy. Arthur, I'm afraid. My dear, you can sleep tonight. I'm here watching you. Nothing can happen. And I promise that any sign of bad dreams, if I see anything, I'll wake you at once. You will. Will you? Really? Then I'll sleep. Anyway, I'm blathering. Did I answer your question, sweetheart? <laughs> yes, you did. There are a lot of bits that you did or part of uh, that I obviously can't get to. But uh, I would just urge you to uh, get on uh, YouTube. Type in Tracy Conway, Almost Live, and you'll see a lot of wonderful things that she she did on Almost Live. But one that I really loved a lot, and I still think about all the time, because I thought it was not just a funny piece, but it was one of those very rare ones on Almost Live that had a heart to it, and that that was sweet. And and you and you called it the Patty Dyke Show. <laughs> and I guess you'd have to be of a certain age to remember that there was a show in the mm -hmm. 60s, I guess, called The Patty Duke Show. The premise of The Patty Duke Show was, well, they had this song. Meet Kathy, who most everywhere. From Zanzibar to Barclay Square. But Patty's only seen the sights a girl can see from Brooklyn Heights. What a crazy pair. So in a similar fashion, uh, you play a woman named Patty. We don't know her last name. And 
and she's got a big date coming up. She's really been looking forward to going on a date with the guy who turns out to be me. Hey, Kathy, are we on for tonight? You bet. I promise not to cancel again. I feel awful about those first two times. I'll pick you up at six. Six o'clock. All right. Mm -hmm. Handsome. And then Handsome she's guy. just getting ready, and then Nancy Guppy comes in and says, Kathy, disaster time. Frank Meyer called. Hated the campaign. He wants a completely new copy by tomorrow morning, which means you and I will be pulling an all-nighter. Get out your sleeping bag. Right, boss. And you think, oh, I'm nuts. What am I going to do? I hate to stand this guy up. And then you think, oh, wait a minute. Hi, Patty. It's Cousin Kathy. you got to help me out of a jam. What's up, Kath? Are you free tonight? Yeah. Not anymore. She looks just like me. Uh, he'll never know the difference. Kathy, who's strictly hetero and likes dates with testosterone. But Patty is a lesbian, so dating boys is alien. What a crazy maze when cousins go two different ways. And so that's the premise of it. Your identical cousin turns out to be a lesbian. Mm -hmm. and, and that's that's the premise of this thing, and I because I'm I'm clueless. Uh, Kathy? Yeah? Boy, you look uh, different than you do in the office. Yeah? Your, your hair is... Uh, I like your hair. I mean, it looks different. <laughs> Never seen you dress like that at the workplace, but... So, you want to go to dinner, the theater? I mean, anything you want to do. This yeah, is... I got something else in mind. Okay, good. This, my car's right over here. No, let's take my wheel. Uh, you just take me on this wonderful date we go, you teach me how to how to hit a baseball, we ride, we ride a motorcycle, uh, you show me how to fix a, a leaking sink. We have a fabulous belching contest. We have a belching contest. Okay, listen to this. Uh. Check this out. And at the end of it, you can hear me thinking to myself, Man, she's really something. Yeah, and so, uh, and it just had a sweet ending to it, and it, it, it was really, you know, a bit ahead of its time, I think, because it showed uh, that there is, uh, there's no reason that people can't be together just because they, they have some things that they think differently or do differently, and you could still form great relationships with, with people if you just give it a chance, and I just thought it was a sweet bed, and you played the part perfectly. It was a two parts, really, that you played perfectly. It was one of my favorite sketch. Well, definitely, it's probably in the top two sketches uh, or three that I was instrumental in the original idea. I did come to the pitch meeting with the the Patty Dyke show, and it got a big laugh just saying it. And I thought, okay, maybe this will this will happen. But then we used the technique that they used on the Patty Dyke show, uh, Patty Duke show, excuse me where you do a lockdown so that the camera doesn't move and I would be on one side of the frame as Patty and on the other side of the frame as Kathy. And it was just such fun to play with that TV magic, even though it was an old technology. And then to get to play Kathy, who, you know, is not the kind of character. Well, I did. I played my share of, uh, of lesbians on Almost Live. Um, but, uh, like you say, the sweetness of just who she really was and that she ended up liking the guy as much as he liked her. They had a great time together. They did. And yeah. and she was helping her sister out, but she was also making this a real good date, special date for the guy. I just thought you, you really hit it out of the park with that. Well, thank thought you. Thought I better mention it.
Thank you. I appreciate that you did. It was a special one. Hey, Kathy, I, uh, I really had a good time. Me too. Good. Hey! Oh! I'll be at work. Wow. What a woman. Uh, you know, we've chatted a ton, but, you know, I, I wanted to say that Almost Live is so well awarded, uh, both nationally and regionally. I uh, was up for a couple of Emmys, but I did win my Emmy for uh, Best Talent in 1992. And I remember, I mean, people were encouraging, oh, you're going to get it, you're going to get it. I was, I honestly, I did not expect to get it. But when I did, I was so thrilled. And I went up and I think you presented it to me, as I recall. But yeah, I got to MC a lot of those. Uh, yeah. So I went up and, you know, you gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. And I turned and I, I remember I, I was just so over the moon. And people seemed genuinely happy for me and were clapping. And I turned and I said, oh, this means more to me than it should, you know. <laughs> and that because I, I know awards, you know, I mean, yes, they're great. And, and I'm not dissing them at all. But I thanked all you guys, because that was my second year on the show. And I just wanted to say that, you know, as I was thinking about our time on Almost Live, and, and I love all of our core, everybody and Nancy in a special way. But, you know, I joined the show right after the within the year of losing my dad and my brother. And in the theater, I worked with a lot of people, but I'd never worked with a whole bunch of straight guys where I was the only woman. And people used to say to me, what's that like? You know, doesn't that feel weird? And I said, no, you know, no, they could not be nicer. Yeah, there's some guy humor, but these are all intelligent guys. I'm not working with a bunch of yokels. And they are so good to me. They, they protect me, they teach me. And I, and I realize now, in hindsight, that you guys became my big brothers, you know, and some my little brothers. And it, it has meant the world to me. So, thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Trace. The Almost Live, Still Alive podcast. Produced and edited by Morris Patrick Cashman. Technical director is Dave Tavers. Special gratitude to the legendary Kenneth George Buford McCaw, Almost Live's chief archivist. And thanks also to King TV Seattle. This program was made possible in part by the 12th century nun and mystic Hildegard von Bingen, inventor of spoken language. And by Emil Berliner, creator of the microphone. And I'm your announcer. That kid from Sluggy, Chris Cashman.